Wonderful. Baby dedications, they never get old. And whether it be one child or 20 children, so neat to be able to pause and give thanks to God for them. And really, in so many ways, dedicate the parents. Um, the kids, you know, they were just agreeing. Hannah in particular. Yay! Yay! It was like, that was really cool. The parents are dedicating themselves to the Lord, and it's always special to be able to join with them as a church family and unite with them as a church family. And so I figured, given the special occasion that is, I would preach on a special topic. We're in a long series in Exodus as a church, but I wanted to pause on that, and I'd like you to turn, please, to John chapter 19. Because today I want to talk about compassion, and in particular I want to talk about the compassion of the Son. I want us to head towards Calvary together and see one of the most incredible moments in all of history. This is the Word of God, John chapter 19 from verse 23 to 27. It will come on the screen as well. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its necessity. I thank you for the way that although we read it, in reality, it reads us. And so, Lord, would you speak to us from your word today? Would you open our eyes to the compassion of the Son and open our eyes to the reality and the difference that makes to us? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, there are some articles in newspapers that tend to stick in your mind, at least in my mind, and the following article written in November 2005 stuck in my mind. It is entitled, Joe the Hero, and here's what it says. It emerged yesterday that pothole victim, Joe Lister, died saving the lives of his classmates. School friend Lee Murphy said that 14-year-old hero Let other children go before him to escape the rising waters, only to find himself trapped underground. He said, it seems they had to swim to get out the other side. I've heard that there are only a couple of them left down there, and Joe told them to go first. A girl in front of Joe said she could feel him pushing her from behind as she went through. Joe was among 11 pupils exploring a cave network at Upper Nidderdale, North Yorkshire, UK, on Monday, accompanied by a teacher and a guide. He was discovered missing after a headcount. It is not known if the count took place above or below ground, but Joe was eventually recovered unconscious and died in hospital. 
Everyone in the school is said to be in total shock. Teachers and pupils are simply stunned and upset by what is taking place. It is believed now that the cave system may have been hit by a flash flood after water thundered over the walls of nearby Scarhouse Reservoir into the River Nid. The river, which rose up by four feet in an hour on the day of the tragedy, flows only yards from the five-foot entrance to the caves. Fencing worker William Standeven said normally a child can paddle in the river at the base of the reservoir, but on Monday the waters were raging. Yesterday, Joe's classmates at Tadcaster Grammar School changed their blue and white ties for morning black ties. Shocked head teacher Jeff Mitchell has described young Joe as an absolute delight. Grieving grandfather Bill Lister said none of us know how this could have happened. Joe was such a strong swimmer. And Joe's parents, Martin and Paula of Steeton, said simply this, all we feel is total devastation. You know, as a parent, I can barely even imagine what that would be like for Joe's parents. One minute you're dedicating him, and then you're burying him, 14 years old. Died in a tragic accident. I can barely even imagine as a parent of five children what that would be like to actually reality go through and the total devastation you would no doubt feel. But one parent who can imagine and one parent who can relate is Mary, the mother of Jesus himself. And we see here in this text right up close and personal the devastation that she is no doubt feeling. See, before she saw her son, Jesus, on this day, he had already been through so much. He had been whipped. He had been scourged. He had been beaten around the head and the face by a whole battalion of soldiers. A crown of thorns had been placed on his head. Some one to two inch thorns put into a head crown and then rammed into his skull so that you couldn't even get it off his head properly. He'd been beaten and mocked and on the way to Calvary he'd been forced to carry a heavy cross but having been beaten and whipped so badly he stumbles and falls at the weight of the cross at which time a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, is asked to carry it for him. By the time Mary saw her son on this day, he would have been a beaten and bloodied mess. John Stott then says the following about the site of the crucifixion. He says, when they reached the site of the crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six inch nails were driven into his forearms just above the wrist. His knees were twisted sideways so that the ankles could, not, could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the mockery and ridicule of the crowd. He hung in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. And so it was. It was the height of pain and it was the depth of shame and Mary, his mom, is standing right there 
looking at it all. And it's hard to imagine how overwhelmingly sad and difficult that must have been for her. She as I said before, I have five children and I still remember when our eldest was young, he went through a series of operations. See, when he was born, we knew that there was probably potentially some challenges, but we hadn't understood all the challenges. And what we went on to discover is he had two holes in his heart. He only had one kidney that was working. He had a cleft palate, so he couldn't speak properly. Now he's really fine, and he was playing drums this morning. All is well. But when you're a parent, and they're just sort of toddling around, you wonder, what is this going to look like? Is this somebody we're going to be caring for for the rest of our lives? And I still remember the first operation when Josh was four years old. And we went into the theatre where he's going to have the operation done and they asked me to help hold him down so they could put gas in him properly to help him get to sleep so they could inject him and so on and so forth. It was the worst experience of my life. Having to hold down a kid who you love and having his eyes looking at you as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? And yet what I went through in that moment was nothing compared to what Mary in this moment is experiencing. She's seeing her son not just be held down for an operation. She's seeing her son in excruciating pain. She's seeing her son be mocked by the crowd. She's seeing passers-by walk up to him and spit on him. And she's there watching, and she's there listening as Jesus' mum. And you know, if there was ever a moment in Jesus' life that you could understand him thinking about himself, I think this would surely be it. He's been unjustly tried. He's been beaten and mocked. He's been pinned to a bloodied cross. He hasn't even done anything wrong. You could understand in the pain that he is experiencing that he might want to just say nothing. Just leave me alone so I can get through this. But even in his darkest hour, incredibly, he doesn't do that. Even now, his selfless gaze is on others. So he looks at the soldiers and the crowds, the very people that are mocking him, the very soldiers that had pinned him to the cross, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the thief on the cross who's next to him that started to understand, I think you're the Lord. He says to him, for today, you will be with me in paradise. And then having caught sight that Jesus' mum is there and his beloved disciple, John, he turns to them and he has some words for them as well. And they're words that aren't just for them. They're words that are for us as well. They still echo today. So there's three things I want us to see about this scene. There's three things I want us to see about these words as we examine them together. And here's the first. Number one, the Savior's compassion for his mother. The Savior's compassion for his mom. And when I was thinking a lot about Mary this week and trying to get in her head and in her mind and in her understanding of what was going on. And when you think about her story, her story to motherhood has been somewhat unique. It's been very different to what everybody else has experienced. There have been many similarities, but some profound differences. Number one, at the age of 13, she was introduced to an angel who told her, even though you haven't slept with anybody, you're going to have a baby. Okay, that's quite unique. No one's had that in this room. 
Her whole motherhood story is begun with an angel letting her know, you are going to give birth to a child. What's up with that? I'm only 13 years old. It ain't going to happen. No, it is going to happen. And it's not just going to be any child. Mary is going to be the Son of God. It's going to be God himself come to the earth. You're going to give birth to the Christ, the Messiah. Well, that would have no doubt been a lot to deal with, but it would have also been a lot to deal with when nine months later it actually happens. Not into the glories of a palace, not into the glories of a kingdom, but she gives birth in Bethlehem into the squalor of a borrowed stable. And yet outside in the fields, angels can be heard. Angels declaring the manifest presence of God that Christ has come, Emmanuel, God is with you. To the point where these shepherds, these aren't just like little shepherd boys, but the NRL bad boys of the day that were known as shepherds back in the day start to run to try and find Jesus. Where is he? And they follow the star, they follow the angels all the way to the stable. And when they see Jesus, they bow on their knees and say, this is him and begin to worship him. And then they're followed by wise men who've also come from afar and they give them gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It says in Luke chapter 2 that Mary observed all these things and saw them and treasured them all up in her heart as you would as a mother as well. What's up with this? This child, I hadn't even slept with anybody. And it appears to be God. This would have been great privilege for her. She would have no doubt had many special moments with Jesus. She would have been there the first time he crawled and walked and laughed and talked. She would have been there to observe the first bit of artwork that we all know as parents isn't very good. But nonetheless we say, oh how lovely! (sighs) You put it away in a box somewhere. She would have been there to receive, no doubt, the first pieces of carpentry as a young Jesus comes skipping in to pass it on. Mom, look what I've made. And to encourage him, as a mom would do. She would have been there at each birthday party to lead the singing and the celebration over her son's achievement of managing another year. She would have been there to read stories to him and take him into bed and talk late into the night with him. This role of being the mother of Jesus came with great privilege. But it was actually at Jesus' baby dedication that we've just experienced in this moment that she's introduced to the reality that this would not just be a great privilege, but with this great privilege would come with great sorrow. So when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, his dad, took him to the temple to dedicate him. That's what you would do. You would baby dedicate these things ultimately to God himself. And Simeon, who was the priest, who was the Patrick of the day, (laughs) then actually says to Mary and Joseph, Mary, you've given birth to the Son of God. He rejoiced that this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one that all mankind has been waited with bated breath whose arrival. Mary, this is him. And then he tells Mary, listen. Mary, this is the son of God. And then he tells her, a sword would surely pass through your soul also, Mary. And she knew even then, 
I don't quite understand how all this is going to work out, but this is going to have great privilege and great sorrow attached to it. At some point, a sword is going to be like passing through my heart. And over Jesus' lifetime and her lifetime, that's exactly what happens. Arthur Pink, a wonderful commentator on this section of Scripture, he says, what sorrow it must have caused Mary when because there was no room in the inn, she had to lay her newly born babe in the manger. What anguish must have been hers when she learned of Herod's purpose to destroy her infant's life. What trouble was given her when she was forced on his account to flee into a foreign country and sojourn for several years in the land of Egypt. What piercings of soul must have been hers when she saw her son despised and rejected by men. What grief must have wrung her heart as she beheld him, hated and persecuted by his own nation. And who can estimate what passed through her soul as she stood there at the cross? Being the mother of Jesus came with great privilege, but it would also come with great sorrow. And it is hard to imagine the great sorrow that Mary must have been experiencing in this moment. Jesus is dead. She's aware of the excruciating pain he is in in this moment. And it's her son. I'm 43 years old and as soon as I have anything wrong with me, my mom still calls me every day. What must Mary have been experiencing in this moment? This is her boy. She's there as the crowd is hearing, mocking, spitting on him and Just over to her left-hand side, she's aware, no doubt, of what's going on with the soldiers. See, in verse 23 and 24, it mentions the tunic, Jesus' tunic, and how they don't want to separate it all up, they don't want to rip it up, so they just decide to cast lots for it. Well, that's significant. Not only because it was something that was predicted in the Old Testament, but it's a bit more than that. See, the tunic would traditionally be given... At a child's 13th birthday in Jewish tradition, it was the coming of age gift. And your mum would make it for you. So your mum would actually craft the tunic. And then she would actually give it as a gift to the son on the 13th birthday. And there it is on the floor. And a bunch of soldiers that have just killed your son are casting lots to decide who's going to take it home. This must have been overwhelming for her. And yet I think what is most captivating about this scene is that wonderfully her son, Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world, is wonderfully aware of her. He's not off in his own little world. He's aware. That's my mum. And he says this in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. When Jesus sees his mom in this moment, he is overwhelmed with compassion for her. Why? Because this is his mom. This is the one who he's honored all his life in glorious perfection, fulfilling the commandment of God. 
He deeply and sincerely loves his mom. He's grateful for his mother. He loves her with all his heart. And he has great compassion on her grief. He's aware, Mom, I know how hard this is for you. Mom, I can only imagine. I I understand how difficult this must be for you seeing me like this in this moment. And he knows. I want to make sure somebody's caring for you after this moment. Because he has compassion on her grief, but he also has compassion on her future. It's understood in the New Testament that Jesus' dad, Joseph, probably died when he was about 12 years old. He's never mentioned after Jesus is 12 years old. There's no welfare state. There's no pension. No one's caring for you. Guess whose responsibility it is? The eldest son. Guess who the eldest son is? Jesus. He's aware that in this moment, Mary will be overwhelmed with grief and there will also, no doubt, for all those looking on, be concerned for her future. What's going to happen to her now? And so he utters these wonderful words of compassion over her. Woman, behold your son. See, if you said that in Australia, I think you might get a slap off your mother. You call me woman? Thank you very much. But in this tradition at this time, the word woman was an incredibly endearing term. It was basically saying, I really love you. So mum, woman, behold your son. Mum, I'm going. Mum, I'm done. I've actually achieved everything I came to do. But mum, I want to make sure you're cared for. So mum, behold your son. My beloved disciple, he will care for you. He will look after you in your grief. He will look after you in all that you need. If ever there was a time you could understand Jesus being distracted, surely this was it. But no, even now he has a heart and a mind for others and so he helps his mom with these wonderful words of compassion. And then number two in this text, we see the Savior's compassion for his disciple. For his disciple, none other than John himself, the author of this book. So the last time John had seen Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and it had not gone so well. And so I want to paint the picture for you so you understand how John is feeling going into this moment with Jesus. Just last night they've been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, understanding what was about to take place in him, says in Mark chapter 14, was greatly distressed of Saul. He is sweating drops of blood. He's aware what is coming up and he is overwhelmed. And so going a little further, we understand to the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes James and John and Peter and he takes them with him and says, listen, I want you three to come with me and I want you to watch and pray. Please, this is the hardest night of my life. Please just stay awake and pray for me. And then Jesus went a little further and started talking to his own father. Well, Jesus had to return to John twice to wake him up. He fell asleep. He couldn't be bothered to stay awake. Oh, Jesus, yeah, this is a hard day for you. I get that. What? Thanks for nothing, kid. And John would have been aware of that. And John would have also been aware of a previous conversation he had had with Jesus when Jesus explained, listen, at some point something's going to happen. 
And the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will all disperse. And John understood, I think you're the shepherd and we're the sheep. But I want you to know, I ain't going nowhere. I will never go anywhere. Whatever happens to you, I will stand by your side. I'll be with you. I'll protect you. And Jesus says, you won't. And John with all the others say, I will. Well, just last night, the shepherd was struck. They came to arrest Jesus. What happens? The disciples run away, including John. So the last time John encountered Jesus, it was in falling asleep twice while his best friend had asked him to pray for him. And then all Jesus actually saw was the bottom of his feet as he ran away from him. John would have no doubt been troubled and concerned about what the Savior's response to him was going to be on this day. John was meant to be his best friend and he had failed Jesus badly. And yet as one commentator says, but love for Jesus could not keep John from Calvary. No, it couldn't. John was deeply concerned about the response he may get from Jesus, but he attends anyway because this is his friend. And what we then see is a wonderful scene of compassion. Because as, John, because as the Savior sees John, he, he doesn't respond with disgust or anger. Or how dare you? It wasn't a big task. He responds with these words. Verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, they are incredible words of compassion because John would have known of Jesus' wonderful love for his mom. He would have known how he felt about his mom. Jesus was a specialist in honoring his mom. He would have understood entirely how you felt about his mom. And so he would have been deeply honored knowing in this moment, you're asking me to care for her. Jesus, I'm deeply honored that you would ask me to care for your mom. John would have known that that was compassion to him. But more even than that, John would have known that Jesus in this moment is effectively saying, John, it's okay. Yep, you fell asleep twice. Yep, you ran away from me. It's okay. John, it's okay, I get it. So disciple, my beloved disciple, behold your mother. Care for mum. Give yourself to mum. Look after mum. What an incredible scene of compassion this really is, isn't it? It's delightful when you just stop and stare at long enough to see these incredible compassionate words of Jesus. And yet what is also incredible, I think, is the reality that 2,000 years on, this scene still speaks to us today. It's not just written so that we can go, that is so moving. It's written so that we can understand this has implications for each and every one of us in the room. Which is my third point, the Savior's compassion for us. See, Martin Luther says it this way. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. 
It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And so it does. The Bible is alive. This isn't just some old crusty book that you look at and go, oh, what the heck has it got to do with me? It is a book that is alive and active that still speaks today. And it speaks to every single one of us in the room. This gospel was written in such a way that it was designed to impact the reader. Not just be a moving story of history, but impact the reader with the realities of what this means for us today. So what does it mean? What does it all mean as we gather around these compassionate words of Jesus? It means two things. Firstly, it means for each and every one of us in the room, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. That's what you meant to say. It wasn't just John coming back to the cross. It was an illustration of how Jesus reacts to everybody when they come back to the cross. Because when we return to Jesus, there's always grace. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, thanks for coming. You're probably dragged along by somebody. You're probably here for a baby dedication. And you probably, during the first song, thought, what in the world is going on? Who are these people waving at for a start? What is going on? You, there's a whole list of things probably going on in your mind, and I get it. You know what? It is my joy to tell you that God, by his grace, passionately and particularly loves you. See, the reality of Scripture is that God made us. Ultimately, he made us and designed us to be with him. We were designed for a relationship with God to know him and love him and talk to him and have intimacy with him. But mankind, me, you, we all didn't fancy that. We wanted creation, but we wanted to reject the creator, and so that's what we all did. That's why when you open the news and you read the newspaper and you think the world is such a mess, yes, it is, because that's what we chose. We want you to butt out, I want what you've made, and I don't want anything to do with you, but I will blame you when things go wrong. Really? The Bible's clear that we rejected God. And because we rejected God, we're cut off from God in his holiness. And yet John 3.16, Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And what glorious news that is. We are cut off from God in our sin, but God so loved the world. He so loved you that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to give his life away as a ransom. Who for? For you. Making it possible so that if you put your faith in him as Lord and Savior, you will in that moment, boom, be forgiven of your sin, removed as far as the east is from the west, be adopted into his family to know him as Savior and King and friend, to actually enjoy a relationship with him and to know for sure that heaven is your eternal home. This is a glorious picture of the love of God. You want to know how much he loves you? He is there in this moment for you. Paying the price of your sin that cuts you off from God. 
but making it possible that through faith in him you could be reconciled back to God and could know him as Savior and King and friend. Listen, for each and every one of us, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. You're never too far gone for Jesus. You've never done too much to be like, you've gone too far. You're never too old to be like, I've had too many years of doing all the bad stuff. I'm done. No. Jesus would look back and say, hey, listen, come to me. I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's always grace when we come back to the cross for unbelievers but also for prodigals. People that have been to the cross before but that's really past tense in your mind. See, maybe for some of you, you ran away from the Lord some time ago. Maybe you did it deliberately, like the prodigal of Luke chapter 15. The world tantalized you. There was something in the world that you wanted more than Jesus. If you could have had both, you'd probably choose both. But understanding you can't choose both, you chose world. And you ran away from the Lord. Maybe you ran away from the Lord deliberately, or maybe you ran away from the Lord because you just got distracted. You got busy, stuff came up, life happened, you don't know how you got there, but as you look back, you realize, I don't know how I got here, but I am distant. Well, my friends, when John came back to the Savior in this moment, when he encountered Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross, even despite his earlier failings, Jesus didn't look back with him with disgust or anger or rebuke. He did not say to him, get away from me. He said to him, and looked at him with grace and compassion and mercy because there's always grace when you come back to the cross. And so it would be if you return to him as well. There's always grace when you come back to the cross. Arthur Pink once again, once again says it this way. He says, cease then from your wanderings and your distractions and return at once to Christ. And he will greet you, not with a rebuke, but with a word of welcome and cheer. My friends, for each and every one of us in the room, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. This text is here to teach us that and to illustrate that. And it's a message that runs throughout the rest of the entirety of the Bible. And then number two, the second thing that it teaches us is that as Christians... Because of the cross, that grace will never leave us. It's here to show us that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the grace that you received when you first put your faith in him will never diminish, never remove itself from you. He will constantly be running after you with his grace and love and compassion. See, at the foot of the cross, Mary was compassionately and specifically cared for by Jesus, wasn't she? Because ultimately, she's family. So Jesus looks on at her and says, of course I'm caring for you. You're my mom. You're my family. Well, my friends, 2,000 years on, we too can have confidence that the Savior will compassionately and specifically care for us too. How do I know it? Well, but 
the reason why I know it is because through the cross, you and I have become family too. We're not just looking at Mary as family. Everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he tells us, becomes family. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is sitting with a crowd. He's discussing things with those around him. And his mother and his brothers come to the back of the room and they're like, oh, hey, Jesus, can I have a chat? You know, they send a message to the front. This is what Jesus responds. He says, but who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a happy discovery this is, don't you think? Jesus in this moment cared intrinsically for his mum because she's his mum, a relative. But what he makes clear is for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, you are all my brothers and sisters and mothers. I'll care for you just the same because you're mine now. You have my blood running through your veins. You are my brother and my sister and my mother. You know, maybe for some of you today, you are here and you are walking through a trial. Maybe it's a health trial. Maybe it's a work trial. Maybe it's a family trial. Something is going on in your life that is just so troubling and difficult. Maybe it's a financial trial. Things aren't working out as you'd hoped. Maybe it's a friendship trial. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. We will all go through trials at different times. My friends, what I want to encourage you with, though, is the reality that whatever the trial you're going through in your life, just like the compassionate gaze of Jesus was on Mary at Calvary, so too it is now on you today. Because you're family. You're his. And he will never let you go. That's why he tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because you're family. I ain't leaving family. All that the Father gives to me, I lose none. You want to know how he cares for you as family? You want to know the hope that you get as family? The psalmist, I think, tells us in Psalm 121. You want to know how he cares for you as the Savior? This is what it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Then he answers, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. How good is that? The Savior of the world will keep your life both now and forevermore. He who neither slumbers nor sleeps, he will hem you in both behind and before. He is your keeper and he will keep you to the end. Why? Because you are family. The one who spins the galaxies is related to you and in the same way he cared for Mary, he will care for you. So stand firm. Be still and know that he is God. Trust him. Because what incredible compassion from the king this really is.
You know, what we see here then really is an incredible cry of compassion, isn't it? It is beautiful when you gather around it and you see it for what it is. We serve an incredibly kind king, a glorious saviour. And this is a cry of compassion that still speaks to us today. There's always grace when we come back to the cross. And because of the cross, as Christians, that grace will never, ever leave you. So may we live in the good of it. What a glorious king. And may all glory go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you that you are a glorious king. Oh Lord, as we examine your life and as we examine Calvary, we are overwhelmed by your compassion. Lord, I can barely even imagine what Mary was going through as your mom. But you knew exactly what she was going through. And you cared for in every detail that she would need in that moment. And Lord, you have done and continue to do exactly the same for us. I thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you died in that moment, giving your life as a ransom for many. Why? So that we could have life. So that we could receive grace and mercy and compassion. So Lord, would we live in the good of that? Would we accept the gift of life you bring us on the cross? And would we unwrap it and live it for your glory? You're so kind. You're all that we need. And may all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.